Hey guys, it's Dawn. If you would like to hear the How My Parents Raised Me podcast ad-free, and if you would like access to subscriber-only episodes, join me in the What's the Truth community. You can join via the Apple Podcast app. There's a link right there in the app. Or go to whatsthetruth.supercast.com. Links are in the show notes. Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My five-year-old self stepped into that sort of almost parental role. You're the only person here that you really know and trust. I will come in and obviously not take care of your physical needs, but we'll try and be there for you emotionally and supportive. And what I've realized is that for me, that felt like this compulsive need to be responsible and take on that responsibility, but also completely overwhelming and anxiety inducing. Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me. I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect souls and the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives and what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives and that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you you What makes you the absolutely unique human that you are? Stories are medicine for the soul. They can connect us and they can change the world. And so in this podcast, I'm listening to beautiful souls sharing their story. What happened to them, how they got through and how they have healed and thrived despite everything to arrive right here in this moment. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hello, my beautiful friends, and welcome back. On the Heal blog this week, don't miss my post, Healing the Latina Mother Wound with Michelle Gomez, Mother Wound Healing Expert. Whilst Michelle works primarily with Latina, Black, Indigenous and women of colour, her tips on healing the mother wound are relevant to all of us. The link to this blog post is in the show notes. You don't need to have experienced a lifetime of abuse or abandonment by a parent to experience deep, significant trauma. There are some really big traumas that have a huge impact on us as adults, but something seemingly quite small growing up can have a huge impact for life. 
This was certainly true for Enneagram coach Samantha Mackay. When Samantha was just five years old, her parents left on a holiday for three weeks, leaving Samantha and her one-year-old sister in the care of grandparents. But her younger sister did not cope with this separation and Samantha felt an overwhelming sense of responsibility for her sister until their parents returned. In this episode, we hear about how this trauma has impacted Samantha throughout her life and how much the Enneagram, a system of personality types, which shows us how we individually interpret the world, has helped her to learn more and more about her true self. Samantha does wonderful work with her clients using the Enneagram and you can find a link to Samantha's website in the show notes so that you can go and check this out. We pick this story up as Samantha is describing the time that her parents left herself and her sister at a very young age. My sister was born when I was five and so sometime in the following year, you know, six to 12 to 18 months later, my parents went on a holiday for three weeks. My sister and I stayed home in the family home with my grandparents who, you know, as a five, six-year-old, I knew and trusted and had a relationship with. But my sister, who was potentially one or younger, didn't have, she wasn't psychologically able to have a relationship really beyond the immediate family, if not just beyond, you know, that mother or caregiver role as children of that age are. And so she was really, really upset by the absence of her, you know, her mother. And what I noticed now, having done some work on it, was that my five-year-old self stepped into that sort of almost parental role, you know. You're the only person here that you really know and trust. I will come in and obviously not take care of your physical needs, but we'll try and be there for you emotionally and supportive in the way that, you know, people try and do. And what I've realized is that for me, that felt like this compulsive need to be responsible and take on that responsibility, but also completely overwhelming and anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. And I think that has ramifications down the track for any relationship I've been in, but it's also mean that I'm very protective of my sister. And so when Mm -hmm. I was discussing this incident a couple of years ago, when I first started to realize the impact it had on me and I was discussing it with with my mother. And I, my initial response was anger on my sister's behalf. You know, I just read this book called Flight from Intimacy, which is about counterdependency traits as opposed to codependency, because I tend to be more counterdependent. And it talks about, you know, not leaving your child under the age of one for more than 20 hours a week because it interrupts their, you know, psychological development. And as I was speaking to my mother about this, I just got enraged at, you know, how could she you know, leave a child under the age of one for this period of time. And what I noticed in that rage, in that, you know, those really powerful feelings was that I wasn't in that equation. It was all about my sister. And when I got off that phone call, I stepped into that and said, well, how did that five-year-old Samantha feel? What was her experience in there? And I just, you know, broke down and There was a lot of crying that followed that. And I still haven't fully processed all of that moment. But I find it interesting now as I've I've gotten older, I can see that how that patterns in my relationships. I get incredibly anxious in relationships and feel sort of this sense of responsibility, but a need for distance. 
because it's, you know, it's just this tension, this push-pull tension that I just don't know how to cope with because I'm stuck in that five-year-old self who does not know how to cope, who doesn't have those skills. And I've just spent nine months helping my sister babysitting her toddler, you know, two days a week for nine months. And there's no one else in the world I would do that for because I am not a kid-oriented person. And I can see I'm like still there helping my sister because that also is programmed in, you know, from that experience. Yeah, wow. That's pretty powerful, isn't it, when you see the effects of that. You you said they're counter, counter-dependent. Oh, yeah. Can you just explain what counter-dependent? Because I haven't actually heard that before. Yeah, so the Flight from Intimacy book, and they have a corresponding codependency book as well, talks about uh, between the ages sort of zero and three, we have to complete a number of processes to have a psychological birth at the age of three. And at that point, we're able to be more individuated with our emotions and emotional responses. But very few people have that psychological birth. And there's a certain number of processes that if don't get completed, then you exhibit codependent traits and behaviors. And and there's another set of processes that if you don't complete, you then exhibit counterdependent behaviors. And so obviously with codependent, you think about moving towards someone and counterdependent is moving away. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who is codependent might look to be more helpful and more attentive and try and show up to things more, whereas the counterdependent person might work long hours at the office and be really confident and look like they're really successful. But behind that, there is still this this anxiousness about intimacy and connecting intimately with with people. And there's a whole range of other traits that go with both of those things, but that's a really mm. tiny snapshot. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And so when you're a little little girl and you're in this unsafe environment, was that affecting your health as a little child? It took me a long time to realise that it was. So I had my first real chronic illness, I would say, as a as a teenager, maybe 14 or 15. And I started to have chronic strep throats Mm. um, and sort of sinusitis, which again, at the time you don't really think anything of. And, you know, I was taking medication for that and, you know, working through it. But yeah, I mean, and at that time I was also, and I don't know if these periods of time cross over, but I had a lot of suicidal ideation because it just felt, I felt so trapped I felt unable to express all the emotions I was feeling. And I had a lot of emotions, especially after my parents' divorce. And it just didn't feel like there was any safe harbor in which to land. And that doesn't mean that my my family home or any of my family homes were unsafe physically, but there was just no space for me to really express all that I was feeling. And mm. that was really challenging. There's you know, there wasn't necessarily a lot of what I would call emotional intelligence in the family dynamic, more emotional skill. I don't think that's unusual. I just, I think it's just what is for, for you know, my situation. And so I never really built those skills around emotions and how to express them and how to talk about them and mm. all that jazz. And so I, then you, I felt trapped inside yeah. my body and inside my life. Yeah, and I think a lot of people really struggle with that because I think in generations gone past, so many people haven't been emotionally connected or expressed that to their children. And so it just gets passed down, doesn't it? And parents getting divorced is one of the adverse childhood experiences that is one of the trauma pieces because 
it is a sense of abandonment. You're going between one home and another and if neither of them feel like fully home. It's it it's a big trauma in itself, isn't it? Is that what you experienced? Mm, absolutely. And I've definitely had done some somatic work to try and release the, the shock of that moment. But I worked, I briefly met a grief counsellor. I don't know if it was a grief counsellor years ago. We only had one session, but she asked me this question that just changed my life and my understanding of so many things. And she said, have you grieved your parents' divorce? And I said, that's not mine to grieve. And she said, actually. And so we sat there and, and talked about that. And I think it's the biggest grief in my life. I think that grief has carried into every relationship and every ending I've had. But until then, I couldn't even acknowledge or, or know or be conscious of the existence of that grief. I was living it every day, often years at a time, without understanding that it was existing within my system and how powerful it is. And despite having done, you know, a lot of grieving all over, over the last few years and a lot of work, I still think it's there's some of it there. I don't think it's fully processed or, you know, resolved or completed yet. Mm, yeah. And so do you think that was the way that it happened? You said it was a shock just then. Was it something that came about without you expecting that was going to happen? I mean, how old were you at the time? Well, I was eight or nine when the official separation happened. But I have a feeling, and this is more intuitive than known, that once my sister was born, my father became a bit more absent generally. And so for me, I think I think part of my sister's arrival wasn't just the complication, but also that sense of this person who I had, you know, trusted and felt safe with disappeared. And so there was lots of confusion and confusing feelings and things going on over that period of time. Yeah, there was definitely this moment that I remember really vividly, you know, dad had moved out when we weren't there, you know, mum had specifically taken us away from the house that day for that moment. And when we got back, a bunch of things were just gone. And there is, you know, one thing I'm learning about grief, it's really important to go through these rituals, these closing rituals. And whilst I understand why mum didn't want to be there. I wonder if I'd been able to see that that transition more tangibly, how that might have changed things. Because I think it was the shock of coming home to a completely different world without really knowing that that was what was coming. And, you know, when mum sat me down and said, I'm going to need you to be more responsible, I'm going to need you, you know, to do more things. And, you know, as a nine-year-old, you don't really understand what that means. You know, an adult might understand what that means. But as a kid, you don't know, nor is it really your responsibility. And, yeah, it really it really was a shock and a change that I struggled to process and to understand and had a lot of anger from, you know, and I think anger from unprocessed grief and confusion. Mm, absolutely. And parents, they are trying to do the right thing by they think shielding you from dad leaving with all his stuff, but in a way, like you say, you need that kind of closure. You need to see what's happening. It's just communication, isn't it? And so many kids, I think people think, oh, they're nine years of age, they'll be fine. There's so much emotion going on that they don't even know how to express. 
and to come home and dad's gone and all his things have gone yeah it's it's such a trauma and I think it's just not understood very well by hopefully getting better understood by by people now what was your relationship like with your sister throughout that time well good and challenging so it was described to me that after you know my parents got back from that holiday I would be the person who knew what my sister wanted and needed and what she was feeling. It was like I'd merged with her in that way. And, but at some point, maybe when I was 11 or 12 or 13, I sort of turned on her. And I think the pressure of being in the middle of my parents, you know, and having to manage just got to me. And I still, I had no outlet. And so, you know, every person who feels bullied or trapped then finds someone else to bully because there has to be a release point. And so for me, it was my sister because, you know, no one really was weaker around me. And so I then began to antagonize her. And I went from being, you know, a very loving and attentive sister to probably a nightmare sister. And it's really hard to apologize for years of being like a a pain in the ass to someone, how difficult that would have been for her. Once we got, she got into her twenties, we became close and, and we're very good friends now, but there was, yeah, it must've been very challenging for her in those childhood years as well. But on the other hand, she wasn't at the forefront of the divorce in the way I was. Mm. She was young enough to be shielded from that, to not be the one who had to be a mouthpiece for mum to have to speak on her behalf and be trapped in the middle. So in a way, like, you know, it's, it's difficult. It's complicated. Oh, it is. And being the person who's in the middle of a parent's divorce and having to give messages to each parent from the other or whatever it is, I mean, that's so much responsibility for a kid, isn't it? I don't think parents realise how much that can impact a child. And you talked a bit before about suicidal ideation. So how low do you think things got for you? At what point in your life was that happening? I think I was about 14 or 15 at the time. And so again, I'm going to bring in some Enneagram here. Because sevens focus on trying to make things, you know, to be positive because they're avoiding being trapped. For them, suffering seems endless. They can be more prone to suicide and suicidal ideation than other types. That's not to say that every type doesn't experience these things, but because of this particular defensive structure, it can be a little more common. And so I think it was just that sense of endlessness, that it felt endless and it felt unbearable. And I would, I'd slipped with a a knife next to my pillow in case anything happened in the night in case we were robbed or broken into or, you know, something came in. And I was getting great grades at school, but really wasn't close to anyone. I was a part of all the different groups. And yes, I had a best friend, but that was more someone I co-opted into being my best friend rather than someone I knew how to be really intimate or emotional, you know, or share things with. And I think it was just that constant of overwhelming emotions, no freedom, no sense of expression, no way to not be controlled that just felt, you know, endless. Now, in those moments, I also knew that it was not something I was ever going to try or go through with, but just that I'd get to this this pit of despair and it would seem like the only solution out of that. 
when I finally worked with my first therapist at the age of 31, I think, we only worked together for two months, but whatever we did in terms of sort of reconnecting my head to my body, what I found after that was that I could go to the bottom of that pit of despair and death wasn't waiting for me. And once I knew that, it almost became like a springboard. I'm like, right, we can go to into the depths of this this well and we know that we're going to come up again. And I just wish I'd gotten a therapy sooner. So it was always, whenever I visited the darkness, that was waiting for me until I finally worked with a therapist that helped there be a springboard at the bottom, help put solid ground into the depths of that darkness. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so obviously you were struggling for a long time. Why did why do you think it took you till you were 31 to ask for help? I think that's a mix of things. I moved out as soon as I could and I was about 17 when I did and I lived on campus, which meant you were then surrounded by alcohol and coffee and, you know, all the things that you didn't necessarily have at home and meeting lots of new people and studying new things and new stresses. And it didn't take long before I was falling apart or I was eating terribly, overwhelmed by anxiety, feeling, you know, like there wasn't a safe place to land. But I grew up in a, in a culture of what I would describe as strong women, you know, and this stoicism means you don't ask for help. And it was the, how can I get through this? That was one part of it. Then another aspect of it just was my identity and, you know, my personality is always been based on being really smart. And I'm like, right, well, this depression is horrendous, but I can outthink it. You know, these mm. are just chemicals. I can figure out another way out of what at the time I called, you know, for want of a better word, bipolar. I don't think I was actually bipolar. I think that's just how I was experiencing things. And it was those two things. And yes, after that, I was depressed and grieving for years. And when I finally sought help, I was dating someone who was inappropriate for me, but he had addictions that he was recovering from and he'd worked with a therapist before. And I said to him, you need to help me. I literally cannot open up the internet and search for someone. I need you to give me a recommendation to get me started. Just whatever it was within me, I couldn't start that process myself. I needed someone to really take me by the hand and help. I need just, I said, I begged him, give me a name, give me something because I just can't do this on my own. And I think, you know, that was shortly after another, you know, really important relationship had ended. I was living in a new country. I knew no one. 
and I'd decided to stay in that country so I could change my life because, you know, it's hard to continue with patterns when you change your environment so substantially. And so I really was just, I'd committed to change, but I was still in the depths of, of, you know, this despair, but I finally recognized that I couldn't do it on my own. I think partly because I'd committed to change and I made this big change, but it was really, really hard to get started. I met with three different counselors and therapists and picked the one that seemed to understand me the most and went from there. Yeah. Wow. It's interesting, isn't it? It sounds like you'd spent your whole life figuring out everything, everybody's problems, your parents, your sister, that was your job. It just sounds like it was so hard for you to ask for help for yourself. And I think a lot of people really relate to that because, yeah, it really is a thing within us that we should just be able to do this. Like I should be able to cope. What what the hell's wrong with me? Everyone else is coping. And, of course, nobody's really coping. Everyone's exactly the same. So what what do you think were the biggest realisations when you when you started therapy? Like what were the, the first sort of things that were revealed to you about what had gone on in your life so far, do you mm. think? Well, the I know a lot of people go to therapy just to talk. And I think there's and some counsellors and therapists almost just expect to be the, the quiet sounding board that, and that let you do all the talking. And for where I was at the time, I couldn't talk. I couldn't. I had no practice in and no ability to articulate anything I was experiencing. And so I needed a therapist who would do the talking for me, who would be able to take the lead in that process. And so she really helped me see how disconnected my mind and body were, how very much I was just trying to be ahead, walking around on a sack of meat and how powerful my body was and, you know, trying to connect to things. And this was at a time when one of the reasons I, you know, finally sort of stopped and asked for help was I was so sick. I was plagued with autoimmune conditions and chronic pain and illness. My body was telling me there was a problem and it was crying out and my head was just doing its level best to ignore all of that pain and just keep soldiering on. And what really caused the change, I was living in London at the time and I I used to be a lawyer and I used to have this near photographic memory and I could remember almost you know, every document in a, in a court case that I was running. And I was in London and I, I, one day, you know, and at this point I'm covered in bandages. I've got seasonal affective disorder. Like I am in a horrendous state. I, I just look at this set of files and I realize I don't know where any, I have no idea what's in them. Like whatever is that part of my memory, the way that brain function has really just gone. You know, it's just been burnout, whether that's due to prolonged exposure to cortisol, adrenaline, whether it's something else, I don't know. I still don't know. It's never come back. But that was the moment, you know, until my body took away the one thing I valued more than anything else, there was no way I was going to change because my brain was still willing to do, you know, it was still fighting. And so when the one thing I valued was gone, I mean, that was initially part of the motivation. Can I get it back? And as I started therapy, I realized a lot of what I had to do was was connect to my body more and be in my body and start to trust my body and trust myself again, almost as a starting place before I could really trust others. But it took a long time for some of those understandings to really land. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's incredible how low we get, isn't it? How unwell. I mean, I can, I'm picturing myself as well in that state. I remember... I, 
I couldn't even get a sentence out. Like my brain wouldn't make my mouth work, you know, let alone remembering something. I couldn't even remember how to speak at one point. It's so debilitating. And you mentioned autoimmune conditions. What has happened to those conditions now? Are they healed? Mm, Mostly. So obviously I've done a lot of work over the last 10 years. So what I had is I had a mix of eczema, a mix of stomach issues, which then leads to digestive issues and, and intolerances. And now I only get, you know, a few bits of eczema on my hands every so often, but I've still got some stomach stuff that I'm working through. At the moment, I've been waking up with stomach cramps most nights. And so I'm just trying to get to the bottom of that. That might be simply because we're starting to work on on the disordered eating and do more work in that space, but I'm not 100% sure. So I've come a long way, but part of that recovery, you know, there was a time where I'd have a group of people on standby that whenever I felt any physical pain, I knew who to call to immediate release it. You know, I had the chiropractor, the massage therapist, the physio, the naturopath, the acupuncturist, and you know, the list goes on. And eventually I learned that I needed to be able to just sit with the pain for a bit longer, you know, and that true recovery was going to come from acknowledging what I was experiencing and feeling that pain and realizing it it wasn't going to stay forever, that it would shift and change. And, you know, it's very hard time when you're in the awful stage of recovering from chronic illnesses because you're usually not sleeping, which is, you know, a massive problem in itself. You're not digesting food very well. You're still having to make a living in some way. And, you know, it's very hard to find a grip on something, something to hold to because it's emotionally taxing, it's mentally taxing. You feel destabilized on all fronts. And I had this amazing naturopath who was able to really listen to me. And when I said that's not working for me and this is working, she would change tack. And so she trusted what was coming up from my body, which then meant I could trust it more. You know, And it's finding people who acknowledge that you have access to and your wisdom is just as vital as their expertise. I remember at times during the thick of it, I was on, you know, medication to keep the anxiety down because I couldn't handle that right now, you know? And so it's, it's going, okay, here's the chunk I'm going to work on right now. Okay. We're just going to focus on diet, which means I need some support with sleep and anxiety. When you get the diet sorted, then you can take, you know, you go, right now it's time for the anxiety or now it's time for the sleep or whatever it is. You sort of just need to tackle one piece at a time because there is just so much of it. Mm, Absolutely. There is so much of it. And so when did you first learn about the Enneagram or bring that side of things into your life? Mm. So I first became a coach 10 years ago in 2013. And in my coaching training, this was the first time I really learned about emotional words or that emotion, you know, I understood emotions conceptually, but not in reality. And at the end of the first day of training, because in coach training, one of the key skills is emotional labeling, you know, and helping our clients label you know, emotions as part of what's coming up. And I went to the teacher at the end of the day and I said, listen, we talked a lot about emotions. Do you have like a list of these emotions? I'm surprised one is included in the manual. And she's like, she looked at me like a stunned fish. You know, no one had ever asked her this question before. And she's like, you're going to have to Google that. I'm like, oh, okay. And I think that was the first time I realized there was this whole part of the dictionary in my vocabulary that I was missing and starting to learn that. And really that that moment 
was the shift into me taking personal work a little more seriously. And so it was a few years after that, you know, I'd started to discover personality type and see the value in working with personality type with my clients. And I was in a consulting role in a aviation company doing a change project. And they came to me and said, we're an organization of sixes. Here's a book. Use that to help you. And if I know what I know now, I probably went, okay, I'm out of here. This I can't handle this. But at the time <laughs> I knew nothing. And so I set that aside. You know, I took a test. I tested as a five. That didn't sound like me. Didn't land. So because I couldn't figure out this system really quickly, I just set aside and moved on. And ultimately that project wasn't really as successful as I would have liked it to have been. And so that was really my first exposure. Shortly after that, I trained as a personality hacker profiler. So that's learning how to figure out someone's Myers-Briggs type through conversation. And that was when I was first really exposed to the Enneagram. But it was only a few years later in 2018 that I really started to take it more seriously. I found the Myers-Briggs system, particularly when you get into the cognitive functions element of it and figure out your stack and you go a bit deeper with it, to be really helpful to understand how to make decisions and how my mind was working. And I found a really great basis for doing some personal development work. Personal development work that I would say was more horizontal, sort of sort of at the at the level I was currently working in to make changes in my everyday life. But the Enneagram, once I got into that, I could see how that was almost a tool for vertical development. So you could make some substantial shifts in your patterns of behavior that had a much wider reaching effect on how you really approach life in general. And so in the Enneagram, it's seeing that your personality is actually a defense mechanism that's hiding you from the real world. The real you, you are not your personality. It is an ego defensive psychological structure designed to keep all the trauma and wounds and things undealt with hidden and protected in a way. And so you use that personality to interact with the world, but it's not the real you. And it's limiting your ability to interact with choice and consciousness in your interactions with yourself and others in everyday life. So as a kid and as a child, your these psychological structures are healthy. They're healthy strategies to survive because as kids, we don't have the emotional, mental, financial resources to figure this stuff out. And we have to have a way of dealing with the psychic pain of our needs going unmet. And we... we, we draw on these things inside of us or our ego to help us do that. Once we have fully formed prefrontal cortexes around the age of 25, we do have the resources, but we've forgotten that we're using these strategies. And so as adults, when we start that journey of adult development, we start to need to see that these are limiting or self-limiting defenses. And that means they're holding us back from interacting in, in multiple different ways of making a broad range of choice. And instead we find ourselves acting one way in everything, but we don't really see it, you know, because these are, you know, very complicated patterns of behavior. And so I find the Enneagram gives us a language. It gives us a framework to make sense of our inner world, to give words to things, and then to give us tools to help to start to observe, inquire, and move through those self-limiting patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting. Thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me. If you listen on Apple, I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast. It would mean a lot. 
Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at my big love project and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique. Your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.